0: Chapter 5, Part 2 of The Seven Lamps of Architecture. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Todd Ulbricht. The Seven Lamps of Architecture by John Ruskin. Chapter 5, The Lamp of Life. Part 2. 9 there is something very delightful in this bold expression of the mind of the great master i do not say that it is the perfect work of patience but i think that impatience is a glorious character in an advancing school and i love the romanesque and early gothic especially because they afford so much room for it accidental carelessness of measurement or of execution being mingled undistinguishably with the purposed departures from symmetrical regularity and the luxuriousness of perpetually variable fancy which are eminently characteristic of both styles how great how frequent they are and how brightly the severity of architectural laws is relieved by their grace and suddenness has not i think been enough observed still less the unequal measurements of even important features professing to be absolutely symmetrical i am not so familiar with modern practice as to speak with confidence respecting its ordinary precision but I imagine that the following measures of the western front of the Cathedral of Pisa would be looked upon by present architects as very blundering approximations. That front is divided into seven arched compartments, of which the second, fourth or central, and sixths contain doors. The seven are in a most subtle alternating proportion, the central being the largest, next to it the second and sixths, then the first and seventh lastly the third and fifth by this arrangement of course these three pairs should be equal and they are so to the eye but i found their actual measures to be the following taken from pillar to pillar in italian braccia palmi four inches each and inches one central door eight braccia or one hundred and ninety-two total in inches two northern door Six braccia, three palmy, one and a half inches, or one hundred fifty seven and a half total in inches. Three. Southern door. Six braccia, four palmy, three inches, or one hundred sixty three total in inches. Four. Extreme northern space. Five braccia, five palmy, three and a half inches, or one hundred forty three and a half total in inches. Five. Extreme southern space, six braccia, one palmy, one half inch, or 148 and a half total in inches. Six, northern intervals between the doors, five braccia, two palmy, one inch, or 129 total in inches. Seven, southern intervals between the doors, five braccia, two palmy, one and a half inches, or 129 and a half total in inches. There is thus a difference, severally, between two and three, and four and five, of five inches and a half in the one case, five inches in the other. 10. This, however, may perhaps be partly attributable to some accommodation of the accidental distortions which evidently took place in the walls of the cathedral during their building, as much as in those of the Campanile. To my mind, those of the Duomo are far the most wonderful of the two. I do not believe that a single pillar of its walls is absolutely vertical. The pavement rises and falls to different heights, or rather the plinth of the walls sinks into it continually to different depths. The whole west front literally overhangs. I have not plumbed it, but the inclination may be seen by the eye by bringing it into visual contact with the upright pilasters of the Campo Santo and a most extraordinary distortion in the masonry of the southern wall, shows that this inclination had begun when the first story was built. The cornice above the first arcade of that wall touches the tops of eleven out of its fifteen arches. But it suddenly leaves the tops of the four westernmost, the arches nodding westward and sinking into the ground, while the cornice rises, or seems to rise, leaving at any rate whether by the rise of the one or the fall of the other, an interval of more than two feet between it and the top of the western arch, filled by added courses of masonry. There is another very curious evidence of this struggle of the architect with his yielding wall and the columns of the main entrance. These notices are perhaps somewhat irrelevant to our immediate subject, but they appear to me highly interesting, and they, at all events, prove one of the points on which I would insist how much of imperfection and variety in things professing to be symmetrical the eyes of those eager builders could endure. They looked to loveliness in detail, to nobility in the whole, never to petty measurements. Those columns of the principal entrance are among the loveliest in Italy, cylindrical and decorated with a rich arabesque of sculptured foliage, which at the base extends nearly all round them, up to the black pilaster in which they are lightly engaged but the shield of foliage bounded by a severe line narrows to their tops where it covers their frontal segment only thus giving when laterally seen a terminal line sloping boldly outwards which as i think was meant to conceal the accidental leaning of the western walls and by its exaggerated inclination in the same direction to throw them by comparison into a seeming vertical 11 there is another very curious instance of distortion above the central door of the west front all the intervals between the seven arches are filled with black marble each containing in its center a white parallelogram filled with animal mosaics and the whole surmounted by a broad white band which generally does not touch the parallelogram below but the parallelogram on the north of the central arch has been forced into an oblique position and touches the white band and as if the architect was determined to show that he did not care whether it did or not the white band suddenly gets thicker at that place and remains so over the two next arches and these differences are the more curious because the workmanship of them all is most finished and masterly, and the distorted stones are fitted with as much neatness as if they tallied to a hair's breadth. There is no look of slurring or blundering about it. It is all coolly filled in, as if the builder had no sense of anything being wrong or extraordinary. I only wish we had a little of his impudence. 12. Still— the reader will say that all these variations are probably dependent more on the bad foundation than on the architect's feeling. Not so the exquisite delicacies of change in the proportions and dimensions of the apparently symmetrical arcades of the west front. It will be remembered that I said the Tower of Pisa was the only ugly tower in Italy, because its tiers were equal or nearly so in height. A fault this so contrary to the spirit of the builders of the time, that it can be considered only as an unlucky caprice. Perhaps the general aspect of the west front of the cathedral may then have occurred to the reader's mind, as seemingly another contradiction of the rule I had advanced. It would not have been so, however, even had its four upper arcades been actually equal, as they are subordinated, to the great seven-arched lower story, in the manner before noticed respecting the spire of Salisbury, and as is actually the case in the duomo of lucca and tower of pistoia but the pisan front is far more subtly proportioned not one of its four arcades is of like height with another the highest is the third counting upwards and they diminish in nearly arithmetical proportion alternately in the order third first second fourth the inequalities in their arches are not less remarkable. They at first strike the eye as all equal, but there is a grace about them which equality never obtained. On closer observation, it is perceived that in the first row of nineteen arches, eighteen are equal, and the central one larger than the rest. In the second arcade, the nine central arches stand over the nine below, having, like them, the ninth central one largest. But on their flanks, where is the slope of the shoulder-like pediment, the arches vanish, and a wedge-shaped frieze takes their place, tapering outwards, in order to allow the columns to be carried to the extremity of the pediment. And here, where the heights of the shafts are so far shortened, they are set thicker, five shafts, or rather four and a capital above, to four of the arcade below, giving twenty-one intervals instead of nineteen. In the next or third arcade, which, remember, is the highest, eight arches, all equal, are given in the space of the nine below, so that there is now a central shaft instead of a central arch, and the span of the arches is increased in proportion to their increased height. Finally, in the uppermost arcade, which is the lowest of all, the arches, the same in number as those below, are narrower than any of the façade the whole eight going very nearly above the six below them while the terminal arches of the lower arcade are surmounted by flanking masses of decorated wall with projecting figures fourteen now i call that living architecture there is sensation in every inch of it and an accommodation to every architectural necessity with a determined variation in arrangement which is exactly like the related proportions and provisions in the structure of organic form. I have not space to examine the still lovelier proportioning of the external shafts of the apse of this marvellous building. I prefer, lest the reader should think it a peculiar example, to state the structure of another church, the most graceful and grand piece of Romanesque work, as a fragment in North Italy, that of San Giovanni Evangelista at Pistoia the side of that church has three stories of arcade diminishing in height in bold geometrical proportion while the arches for the most part increase in number in arithmetical i e two in the second arcade and three in the third to one in the first lest however this arrangement should be too formal of the fourteen arches in the lowest series that which contains the door is made larger than the rest and is not in the middle but the sixths from the west leaving five on one side and eight on the other farther this lowest arcade is terminated by broad flat pilasters about half the width of its arches but the arcade above is continuous only the two extreme arches at the west end are made larger than all the rest and instead of coming as they should into the space of the lower extreme arch take in both it and its broad pilaster. Even this, however, was not out of order enough to satisfy the architect's eye, for there were still two arches above to each single one below. So at the east end, where there are more arches, and the eye might be more easily cheated, what does he do but narrow the two extreme lower arches by half a braccio, while he at the same time slightly enlarged the upper ones, so as to get only seventeen upper to nine lower, instead of eighteen to nine. The eye is thus thoroughly confused, and the whole building thrown into one mass by the curious variations in the adjustments of the superimposed shafts, not one of which is either exactly in nor positively out of its place. And, to get this managed the more cunningly, there is from an inch to an inch and a half of gradual gain in the space of the four eastern arches. Besides the confessed half braccio, their measures counting from the east I found as follows. First, three braccia, one inches. Second, three braccia, two inches. Third, three braccia, three palmi, two inches. Fourth, Three braccia, three palmy, three and a half inches. The upper arcade is managed on the same principle. It looks at first as if there were three arches to each under pair, but there are, in reality, only thirty-eight, or thirty-seven, I'm not quite certain of this number, to the twenty-seven below, and the columns get into all manner of relative positions. Even then, the builder was not satisfied, but must needs carry the irregularity into the spring of the arches, and actually, while the general effect is of a symmetrical arcade, there is not one of the arches the same in height as another. Their tops undulate all along the wall like waves along a harbour quay, some nearly touching the string course above, and others falling from it as much as five or six inches. 14 let us next examine the plan of the west front of saint mark's at venice which though in many respects imperfect is in its proportions and as a piece of rich and fantastic colour as lovely a dream as ever filled human imagination it may perhaps however interest the reader to hear one opposite opinion upon this subject and after what has been urged in the preceding pages respecting proportion in general more especially respecting the wrongness of balanced cathedral towers and other regular designs, together with my frequent references to the Doge's Palace and Campanile of St. Mark's, as models of perfection, and my praise of the former especially as projecting above its second arcade, the following extracts from the journal of Wood the Architect, written on his arrival at Venice, may have a pleasing freshness in them and may show that I have not been stating principles altogether trite or accepted. The strange-looking church and the great ugly campanile could not be mistaken. The exterior of this church surprises you by its extreme ugliness more than by anything else. The ducal palace is even more ugly than anything I have previously mentioned. Considered in detail, I can imagine no alteration to make it tolerable but if this lofty wall had been set back behind the two stories of little arches it would have been a very noble production after more observations on a certain justness of proportion and on the appearance of riches and power in the church to which he ascribes a pleasing effect he goes on some persons are of opinion that irregularity is a necessary part of its excellence i am decidedly of the contrary opinion and am convinced that a regular design of the same sort would be far superior. Let an oblong of good architecture, but not very showy, conduct to a fine cathedral, which should appear between two lofty towers, and have two obelisks in front, and on each side of this cathedral let other squares partially open into the first, and one of these extend down to a harbour or sea shore, and you would have a scene which might challenge anything in existence.' why mr wood was unable to enjoy the colour of st mark's or perceive the majesty of the ducal palace the reader will see after reading the two following extracts regarding the caracci and michelangelo the pictures here bologna are to my taste far preferable to those of venice for if the venetian school surpass in colouring and perhaps in composition the Bolognese is decidedly superior in drawing and expression, and the Carracci's shine here like gods. What is it that is so much admired in this artist, Michelangelo? Some contend for a grandeur of composition in the lines and disposition of the figures. This I confess I do not comprehend. Yet while I acknowledge the beauty of certain forms and proportions in architecture, I cannot consistently deny that similar merits may exist in painting, though I am unfortunately unable to appreciate them. I think these passages very valuable, as showing the effect of a contracted knowledge and false taste in painting upon an architect's understanding of his own art and, especially, with what curious notions or lack of notions about proportion that art has been sometimes practised. For Mr. Wood is by no means unintelligent in his observations generally, and his criticisms on classical art are often most valuable. But those who love Titian better than the Caracci, and who see something to admire in Michelangelo, will perhaps be willing to proceed with me to a charitable examination of St. Mark's. For although the present course of European events affords us some chance of seeing the changes proposed by Mr. Wood carried into execution, we may still esteem ourselves fortunate in having first known how it was left by the builders of the eleventh century. 15. The entire front is composed of an upper and lower series of arches, enclosing spaces of wall decorated with mosaic and supported on ranges of shafts of which in the lower series of arches there is an upper range superimposed on a lower thus we have five vertical divisions of the façade i e two tiers of shafts and the arched wall they bear below one tier of shafts and the arched wall they bear above in order however to bind the two main divisions together the central lower arch the main entrance rises above the level of the gallery and balustrade which crown the lateral arches the proportioning of the columns and walls of the lower story is so lovely and so varied that it would need pages of description before it could be fully understood but it may be generally stated thus the height of the lower shafts upper shafts and wall being severally expressed by A, B, and C, then A to C as C to B, A being the highest, and the diameter of the shaft B is generally to the diameter of shaft A as height B is to height A, or something less, allowing for the large plinth which diminishes the apparent height of the upper shaft, and when this is their proportion of width, one shaft above is put above one below with sometimes another upper shaft interposed but in the extreme arches a single under-shaft bears two upper proportioned as truly as the boughs of a tree that is to say the diameter of each upper is two-thirds of lower there being thus the three terms of proportion gained in the lower story the upper while it is only divided into two main members in order that the whole height may not be divided into an even number has the third term added in its pinnacles so far of the vertical division the lateral is still more subtle there are seven arches in the lower story and calling the central arch a and counting to the extremity they diminish in the alternate order a c b d the upper story has five arches and two added pinnacles, and these diminish in regular order, the central being the largest and the outermost the least. Hence, while one proportion ascends, another descends, like parts in music, and yet the pyramidal form is secured for the whole. And, which was another great point of attention, none of the shafts of the upper arches. Stand over those of the lower. End of chapter 5, part 2 Recording by Todd Albrecht